Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Today, we'll move on from the ancient Near East to someone who had to move rather quickly out of the medieval Near East. He was Abdal Rahman, seemingly destined for greatness in the Umayyad Caliphate until it was overthrown and he had to flee for his life. But he found greatness anyway, over 2,000 miles west, when he founded a new Umayyad dynasty in the Emirate of Cordoba, which would last three centuries as one of the most powerful kingdoms in Europe. Maps and images can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 5, Episode 4, Abd al-Rahman, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Abd al-Rahman was born in 731 AD in Syria, somewhere near Damascus. He was the grandson of the Umayyad Caliph at the time, who ruled an empire that stretched from Afghanistan in the east, across the Near East and North Africa, to the western Mediterranean. He was one of the maybe two most powerful men in the world, the Chinese emperor being the other, so his grandson was born into something of an advantageous situation, for the moment. Moving north and west from the Caliphate in the middle of the 8th century, the Eastern Roman Empire still held significant territory in the northern Mediterranean, and by this time, the Byzantines had stemmed the tide of the Arab onslaught and were able to hold Greece, Anatolia, and southern Italy. Western Europe was dominated by the Frankish kingdoms, led by Pepin the Short starting in 751, and the kingdoms of the Lombards, the Saxons, and a few other Germanic peoples further east. In England, there were seven kingdoms, give or take, and it was still a century away from Alfred the Great starting to unify the island. To the south of the Muslim lands, the kingdom of Aksum, which had ruled northern Ethiopia and traded extensively on the Red Sea, was beginning to feel the pressure of the Arab rise in power, and was in decline. The small Nubian kingdoms of Alodia and Makuria remained strong enough to resist Arab invasions, and signed a treaty with the caliphate which lasted for about 700 years, preventing warfare and allowing trade. To the east in Central Asia, smaller independent states were finally beginning to succumb to the on-and-off-again Arab conquest, which was about three-quarters of a century old. South and east of that, the Gujara Pratahara dynasty of northern India was able to check Arab expansion at the Indus River, possibly with a confederacy of other Indian states. The Rashtrakuta dynasty was rising in southern India. India's eastern region of Bengal was ruled by the Pala Empire, and these three empires fought each other in a tripartite struggle centered on a region on the Ganges referred to as the Kanauj Triangle, and each kingdom was willing to claim it and fight over it. In Korea, Shilo was dominant over much of the peninsula, while the Balhae held the north and Manchuria. Japan was in its Nara period, while in Southeast Asia, the Chenla split into two kingdoms, 
which would soon usher in the time of the mighty Khmer Empire. And in the Western Hemisphere, the Wari and Tiwanaku states dominated the cultures in the Andes around Peru. In Mesoamerica, the Maya were at their height, ruling a large region, including the Yucatan, that extended west into Chiapas and Tabasco, and south into southern Guatemala. The Umayyad Caliphate, as I mentioned, ruled a vast empire in the middle of the 8th century, stretching from the Pillars of Hercules to the Indus Valley, and that included a small piece of Europe. That's because earlier in the century, in 710 AD, the Caliphate had just conquered most of western North Africa, and the current governor, Musa ibn Nusar, had swept away almost all vestiges of Roman, Gothic, and Byzantine power. So, essentially unopposed in Africa at that point, that year a group of Berbers from North Africa landed in Spain from across the narrow strait and began scouting the region. They were able to establish something of a beachhead with a few hundred soldiers in the kingdom of the Visigoths, which had been established about three centuries earlier. Liking the reports he heard about the chaos and weakness of the native tribes, Musa decided it would be a good place to colonize, and sent over one of his sub-governors, Tariq ibn Zayid, to subdue the locals. The invaders didn't have to do this all by themselves. They had some assistance from several of the native tribes. See, there was a new king of the Visigoths, Roderick, and he had replaced King Witiza. Witiza may have been assassinated, he may have died of natural causes, but there was certainly a succession crisis, and Roderick was opposed and seen as a usurper by factions that included Witiza's sons. They may well have asked for help from the Muslim armies after they arrived. This was only a year or two after the Muslims took Tangier in Morocco, so the conquest had not really waited a second after crossing North Africa to move up into Spain. Tariq consolidated his troops near a seaside mountain, now called the Mount of Tariq, or Jabal Tariq, anglicized to Gibraltar. He led an army to near the city of Cadiz, where he was confronted with the larger army of Roderick, king of the Visigoths. There, Roderick was probably killed in battle. He was never mentioned again in the extant historical sources. Moving north, Tariq bypassed Sevilla as it was heavily fortified, and within a few months he had taken Cordoba. The kingdom of the Visigoths was smashed. As Philip Hitti writes in his History of the Arabs, Quote, Thus did Tariq, who in the spring of 711 had started as leader of a raid, become by the end of the summer the master of half of Spain. He had destroyed a whole kingdom. Unquote. Musa soon followed his general to Spain, and together they had taken Sevilla, the city of Merida to the north, which offered fierce resistance, and Toledo, the Visigoth capital, probably no later than 713. Without a king, and with the capture, and sometimes execution, of many Visigoth nobles, the Arab conquest of southern Spain was complete. All that was left was to move north and take out the other, smaller, weaker kingdoms, which had already broken off in the years prior to the Arab invasion. Musa, though, was recalled to Damascus. He came out on the wrong end of political intrigues and was stripped of his rank, and he never returned. His successors continued to consolidate power for the Umayyads. They took Zaragoza, or Saragossa, 
a city whose settlements date back from before Octavian founded it as Caesar Augusta in the last quarter of the first century BC. And they began raiding Basque territory on either side of the Pyrenees, which was nominally Frankish territory, although the Basques might have qualms with that characterization. The Arabs crossed the Pyrenees, going deep into the Frankish kingdom, crossing the Garonne River, sacking Bordeaux, and threatening Poitiers. As they neared Tours, they encountered Charles Martel and were beaten in a famous battle said to have stopped the Arab conquest of all of Western Europe. But trouble had already been brewing for the conquerors by the time they got this far north. Hitti somewhat writes off the whole battle, saying, Quote, to several modern historical writers, this battle of Tor is one of the decisive battles in history. In reality, it decided nothing. The Arab-Berber wave, already almost a thousand miles from its starting place in Gibraltar, had reached a natural standstill. It had lost its momentum and spent itself, unquote. Hitti, though, wrote in the middle of the 20th century, and his interpretation of this particular battle's conquest is still not the prevailing wisdom but he was right to say that things were not all good for the new residents of Spain. The Sunni-Shia divide had already begun, and while not perhaps as starkly defined as it is today, it, as well as more generally regional rivalries, led to internal strife and conflict inside the colonizing army. Feuds between Arabs and Berbers flared up as well. The Berbers, native North Africans, feeling like they were doing most of the conquering of Spain without getting as much of the spoils which were given to the Arabs. Starting in 740, there was an uprising called the Great Berber Revolt across North Africa and into Al-Andalus, Spain. Caliph Hisham in Damascus sent an army which managed to quell the uprising in Tunisia, but his forces were defeated in 741, leaving the western part of North Africa, the Maghreb, permanently severed from the caliphate. But some parts of this army of Syrian soldiers went to Spain, defeated the Berbers there, and were given lands along the southern Spanish coast. They were loyal to the caliph, and there were quite a few of these Syrians, introducing more rivalries into the Iberian Peninsula. Technically ruled from Kairouan in Tunisia, the governor of Al-Andalus was able to rule somewhat independently, and soon, Cordoba became the regional capital. A compromise was reached between the two biggest rival factions on the peninsula, and they alternated emirs every year to keep anyone from taking too much power. But in 746, a local military leader named Yusuf ibn Abd al-Rahman al-Fahiri, we'll just go with Yusuf, was given his year of control and never gave it up, ruling as the permanent governor of Umayyad Spain. Back in Syria, an event occurred in 750 which shook the Islamic world more than even the Berber revolt. Actually, it was more of the culmination of five or six years of civil war throughout the caliphate. But in January of the year 750, the rebellious Abbasids defeated Umayyad forces, and by April, they had taken the capital of Damascus. When he learned of the coup, Yusuf, way out in Spain, tried to make a deal with the Abbasids, as he was nominally independent there, didn't have any particular love for the Umayyad Caliph, and just wanted to maintain his authority. The Abbasids, though, demanded submission, and the Western governors, including Yusuf's relative who held Tunisia and the rest of the Ifriqiya province, 
decided to revolt against the usurpers. Thus, a somewhat independent group of states emerged west of about the middle of today's Libya. The emir of Ifrakaya invited Umayyad noblemen who were fleeing the Abbasids into his region, and Umayyads were indeed being tracked down and killed. According to Hitti, after capturing and killing the last Umayyad caliph, Quote, the Abbasids now embarked upon a policy of exterminating the Umayyad house. The general Abdallah shrank from no measure necessary for wiping out the kindred enemy root and branch. On June 25, 750, he invited 80 of them to a banquet at Abu Futras, ancient Antipatris on the Auja River near Jaffa, and in the course of the feast, had them all cut down, unquote. Their bodies were then thrown to the dogs. This was done, of course, after the promise of amnesty for these banquet guests. Hitti writes that, quote, agents and spies were sent all over the Muslim world to hunt down fugitive scions of the fallen family, unquote. And into this craziness, dear listener, comes the tale of our Abd al-Rahman ibn Muawiyah ibn Hisham. About the name, let's start with the given name before the ibns. Abd al-Rahman was his full given name, essentially his first name. Sometimes pronounced Abdar Rahman or even Abdul Rahman, Abdal Rahman is translated from the Arabic as the servant of the most gracious. All that being said, if you know anything about Arab or Semitic names, those ibns after the Rahman means son of. He was Ibn Muawiyah, Ibn Hisham, in English the son of Muawiyah, who himself was the son of Hisham. His father Muawiyah is remembered as a general who led forces against the Byzantines and even besieged Nicaea, not far from Constantinople. And Abd al-Rahman's grandfather, Hisham, was the very same Caliph Hisham who dispatched the army to quell the Berber revolt. So, as I mentioned, Abd al-Rahman was born in Syria in the year 731, outside of Damascus, the Umayyad capital at the time or possibly outside of Palmyra, depending on the source. Anyway, he was about 19 when his family's reign came to an end. Hitti describes him as tall and lean, with sharp aquiline features and thin red hair, so he might have been pretty recognizable in Damascus. Hisham had intended Abd al-Rahman's father to be his successor, but he died young, and Hisham raised his grandson in the palace. Hisham died in 743, so it isn't clear exactly what the next few Umayyad caliphs intended for Abd al-Rahman's future. But he was still a highly regarded noble. Needless to say, after the Abbasids took over, he needed to get out of Dodge, and fast. He first hid in a village or Bedouin camp near a forested area on the banks of the Euphrates in Syria, trying to find his way to Africa. In his tent there, he saw the flags of Abbasid forces approaching the village. He asked his freedman, Badr, to meet him at a spot along the river. Badr showed up with someone who knew the area well, but this guide gave away their location, and Abbasid cavalry soon showed up. Abd al-Rahman, his younger brother, and his four-year-old son jumped into the river to escape. The pursuers tried to convince them that they were not going to be harmed, and the younger brother gave up the difficult swim and surrendered. Abd al-Rahman kept going and made it to the other side. According to what Ahmed ibn Muhammad al-Makari in The History of the Mohammedan Dynasties in Spain 
says were Abd al-Rahman's own words. Quote, no sooner had I set my feet on shore than I began anxiously to look about for my brother, whom I saw in the hands of the soldiers, and whom I expected every moment to see put to death. I was not mistaken. For the traitors, having dragged their victim to a spot not far from the river, beheaded him immediately, and leaving the trunk on the spot, marched triumphantly away with the head. My brother was then thirteen years old, unquote. Abdal Rahman then ran into a nearby forest and hid until he thought his pursuers had given up. He then somehow made his way west, perhaps into Africa, perhaps more around Gaza. It's a little unclear. Parts of his household had made a similar journey, and he met up with his sister, along with Badr there. Eventually, they made their way west to Tripoli and stayed with a Berber tribe there, a tribe which included his mother's family. At first, the governor, no friend of the Abbasids, welcomed Umayyad refugees, and more members of the royal family came. But the Umayyad noblemen were very popular and might have threatened the governor's authority. At some point, an attempt was made on Abdel Rahman's life, and he went into hiding, spending the next five years in North Africa in disguise, slowly wandering further and further west. Sources differ as to where he went during this wander. Some say near Zanata in western Algeria, near Tlemcen. Others say Meknes in Morocco, west of Fez. Either way, he was about as far as he could get from the caliphate while still being in Muslim lands. But he could go a little further. In 755, he arrived maybe in Malila, or more likely in Ceuta, a small island across from Gibraltar, which had a decent-sized mountain, so maybe it's the other pillar of Hercules, although nobody's really sure. He sent Badr across to the Iberian Peninsula to gauge the interest of potential allies. Badr started with those loyal Umayyad-supporting Syrians that I did some foreshadowing about earlier. This wasn't some fly-by-night endeavor. Hey, my boss is coming, you want to fight for him? Abdel Rahman reminded one of the generals of the obligation that man had, having sworn to help the Umayyads and that he was asserting his rightful place as the highest-ranking surviving descendant of Hisham. According to Hugh Kennedy in the New Cambridge Medieval History, quote, the fugitive scion of a dispossessed dynasty, Abdel Rahman had few obvious advantages. He was only 26 years old, had no experience of government and no significant financial resources, and neither he nor any member of his family had ever visited Al-Andalus before, unquote. But these men said they'd welcome him as their leader. This, Hitti stresses, was more because of how tyrannical and consequently hated Yusuf had become than because of anything that was particularly interesting about Abdul Rahman himself. Yusuf, remember, had taken over as governor for a year and had managed to hold on to power for something like eight years at this point. Of course, there was personal advantage to be gained by these men as well, being the leading generals for the new leader of Al-Andalus. So, Abd al-Rahman was welcomed in Spain, and his new allies brought on others to join his forces. This man was a member of the Umayyad family, descendants of Umayyah Abd Shams, a grandson of the great-great-grandfather of Muhammad. This family had close, legitimate ties to Muhammad. Uthman, or Osman, Muhammad's close companion, was an Umayyad before the actual Umayyad dynasty existed, and he was the third caliph of the original caliphate. This 
was Abdal Rahman's family. And this is why, after getting a few leaders on board, city gates were thrown open to him. This and the fact that these cities were led by Umayyad loyalists looking for a way out from under Yusuf. Hugh Kennedy goes on to caveat his few obvious advantages line by writing, not only did he have these familial ties which put him above the northern-southern Arab rivalry, but, quote, perhaps the most important asset he had, however, was a group of Umayyad Mawati on whose absolute loyalty he could count. The Mawati were clients of Arab families. When members of conquered populations, whether Syrian, Aramean, Greek, Persian, or Berber, wished to convert to Islam and share the privileges of the ruling group, they attached themselves to an individual or family who became, so to speak, their godfather. Many of these were ex-prisoners of war or ex-slaves, and, while they were now freemen, they had no tribal connections and owed their loyalty to their sponsors, unquote. The commanders of Syrian forces weren't tribesmen from Mecca. They were often Mawadi themselves, born in Syria, and they had no real status among the leaders of Al-Andalus. They were, quote, happy to offer their support to Abd al-Rahman's messenger, unquote. So when he arrived in front of these forces, they did indeed welcome him as their leader. He landed in Spain and was taken to the town of Torox, where his leading ally was living, about 50 kilometers or 30 miles east of Malaga on the coast. As news made its way around the south of Spain, local leaders came to his side. According to Al-Makari, quote, the party waxed stronger day by day and even moment by moment, and people flocked to his banners from every part of the country, unquote. In 756, outside of Malaga in the town of Archidona, troops from the Levant proclaimed him as the new emir, he was welcomed in the province of Sidonia near Cadiz and by the city of Sevilla, thanks to troops from the same general area. These were people that had lived close to the seat of Umayyad power before they went west. Yusuf had not been able to do anything to stop Abd al-Rahman at this point because he had been preoccupied. Like Harold Godwinson three centuries later, in 755, Yusuf had to travel north to fight a battle there. Yusuf wasn't fighting an invasion by Norsemen in Yorkshire, though. He was up north in Zaragoza, quashing a revolt, and then launching an attack on the Basques. His forces were defeated in or near Pamplona, the closest thing to a Basque capital. But he had put down the revolt, so you win some, you lose some, I guess. Time to go back south. On his march towards Toledo from his campaign in the north, Yusuf learned of the invasion from across the narrow sea this invader being Abdel Rahman, not William. But Abdel Rahman was at an advantage, even compared to Billy the Conk, because by the time Yusuf got there, not only did he have an army of veteran warriors at his disposal, he already had a region under his control. Yusuf marched his army towards Sevilla, but found many of his soldiers were deserting. Yusuf had executed the rebellious northern leaders, despite their high status as well as his own promises not to kill them. And that didn't sit well with his army. There's that whole people not really liking living under Yusuf thing again. But he had enough forces, he thought, to make his way to Cordoba and then gather more. The two armies encountered each other outside of Cordoba, on the Guadalquivir River. Abd al-Rahman's army was hungry, without much food among them. 
Yusuf, on the other hand, made a big show of cooking up and eating some sheep in order to taunt and perhaps weaken the alliance of his adversary. Then he offered a deal to this would-be usurper, his daughter in marriage, and therefore being named heir to the throne. But Abdal Rahman didn't bite. Eh, sorry for that pun. On May 14, 756, they readied for battle. Abd al-Rahman's Yemeni Arab troops were worried that their new commander might just desert them at the first sign of trouble on his very fast-looking horse. Hearing about this, he went to the Yemeni leader and swapped out his strong Spanish horse for that chief's mule, mounting an animal that may not have been the most noble, but certainly showed he wasn't about to hightail it out of there. According to al-Makari, after some hard fighting on both sides, Yusuf was the first to give way. As-Samil and his followers valiantly kept their ground until all hopes of recovering the day were gone. Abd al-Rahman made his way to Cordoba, giving Yusuf's family time to leave, and Yusuf fled north, trying to continue the fight. According to Brian A. Kotlos, in his Kingdoms of Faith, quote, It was a Friday, the day of communal prayer, and after defeating his rivals, Abd al-Rahman was proclaimed Amir, prince or commander, of al-Andalus in the city's mosque. He would be known popularly as al-Dakil, he who came in, unquote. By 757, he had established himself, at least in the south. He sent messengers out throughout North Africa and the Middle East, saying any of his Umayyad relatives in hiding that had survived were welcome to come to Spain and when they arrived, he received them warmly. This caused something of an influx of talented former dignitaries to come to his new kingdom. From al-Makari, quoting another historian, quote, During the reign of this sultan, says one, numbers of illustrious Muslims quitted the lands of their fathers and settled in Andalus. Several of the Beni Merwan, too, encouraged by the success of Abd al-Rahman, flocked to him from the east, unquote. The Beni Merwan, or the Marwanid house, was the name for the Umayyad clan that descended from the Caliph Marwan, including Hisham. So this meant Abd al-Rahman's clan. This was not just minor noblemen. It included another grandson of an Umayyad caliph who had been involved in the empire's administration and was given the governorship of Sevilla as his welcome gift. It is said that this man convinced Abd al-Rahman to quit doing something that, quite frankly, surprises me that it was done at all. The Abbasid Caliph Abu Jafar al-Mansur, defender of the faithful, as it were, was included in prayers at the mosques, despite being the one who, you know, was having all the Umayyads hunted down and killed. So, after ten months as the leader in Spain, he decided to take that prayer out of the service. He did not, however, take the title of caliph, although being the leading member of that royal house, he probably could have. Instead, he styled himself as the emir of Cordoba, his new capital. But he still had to contend with revolts in his newly conquered land, as the divisions that helped him take it were still prevalent. Yusuf had been pardoned and fled north, and he decided to raise another army. This didn't last long, as that cousin who was given Sevilla led an army out and confronted Yusuf, who was finally killed not far from Toledo, which is about 75 kilometers, less than 50 miles, southwest of Madrid. At the time, though, Madrid didn't really exist. Toledo, on the other hand, was a major city in Spain, 
and had been the Visigothic capital for about 200 years up to the Muslim conquest. The Abbasid Caliphate was always happy to help foment revolt among the Shiites, Yemenite Arabs, and Berbers living in Al-Andalus in order to topple their last Umayyad foe. Some of the new emir's allies turned on him, including one of the leading generals who fought alongside him in the first battle against Yusuf, and even his buddy Badr was exiled from court. The Abbasids expanded their power west and eyed the small Berber kingdom of the Maghreb and, of course, Al-Andalus. They even appointed a governor to go to Spain, perhaps thinking he'd raise some forces and finally bring the peninsula back to the caliphate. He took the city of Beja in what is today southern Portugal and began raising an army to try to assert Abbasid control over Al-Andalus. Instead, he wound up returning to Syria. Well, at least his head did, unattached from his body, along with his diplomatic papers showing his appointment to the job. Although the Abbasid governor was able to raise a force, Abd al-Rahman marched out with his army, and they fought not far from Sevilla. In somewhat unfriendly territory away from his power base, he had his men destroy their scabbards so they could not resheath their swords. And Kotlos writes, quote, he led them out in a desperate sally against the enemy, unquote. Victory was complete for the emir of Cordoba. It is said that when the caliph saw the unattached head of his governor back east, he praised the Lord that there was a sea separating them. He hated Abd al-Rahman, but he respected him, calling him the Falcon of the Quraysh, the Quraysh being the tribe in Mecca from which both the Umayyad and Abbasid clans descended. Abd al-Rahman would have liked to retake the caliphate itself, but Spain probably wasn't the best base of operations for such endeavors. It didn't exactly have a history of peaceful internal relations. And Al-Andalus was not really a unified place before he arrived. Each region, especially each big city, had significant autonomy. In the 760s, he had to put down a revolt around Sevilla. By this point, he had nominal control over the territory, but this is the medieval period we're talking about. This control was exercised essentially through vassal lords. At some point, he confiscated and then gave back some of the lands of one Artubas. Artubas held extensive lands in Spain, and he was the son of Witiza, that Visigothic king. So it wasn't some integrated nation-state we're talking about here. And Visigoths and Christians and Jews and Basques and anyone else you can think of still lived on the peninsula. They weren't driven out or eliminated with the presence of the Arab invaders. Although dead by Abd al-Rahman's arrival, we do know of another example of this in a man named Theodomir, who was some sort of Visigothic nobleman. He continued to fight the Arabs after the death of Roderick, but eventually was defeated himself. And, according to the New Cambridge History of Islam, quote, Theodomir entered into a pact with the conquerors, a pact whose wording has been preserved in late compilations, and which bears strong resemblances to similar post-conquest agreements in the Near East. In exchange for recognition of his rule and the guarantee of safety for his subjects and religion, Theodomir undertook to pay a certain amount of taxes in cash and kind to the Arabs, unquote. Theodomir's son appears to have inherited these vassal lands, and they intermarried with the Arabs and stayed powerful, rich, and important through the centuries of Muslim rule in the southeast region of Spain. 
Other local indigenous rulers eventually submitted to Muslim rule, but maintained local independence, such as a man named Cassius, whose descendants were known as the Banu Kasi, who ruled a small kingdom in the Ebro River Valley, south of Pamplona. A decade after the revolt in Sevilla, Abd al-Rahman began to prepare an army to finally go and retake Syria, but his plans were again stymied. In 777, a few northeastern territories on the peninsula, which had still not been taken, these were probably led by Yusuf's allies and family members who had not submitted, turned to the most powerful neighboring king they could find, a man named Karl. Although today he is known around these parts as Charles I, Charles the Great, or the French version of that, Charlemagne. The governor of Barcelona led the efforts, and they paid off, at least insofar as they got a Frankish army to come down across the Pyrenees and try to help their allies defeat this new emirate of Cordoba. The governor of Barcelona joined his forces with the Frankish soldiers, but when they got to Zaragoza, the governor there balked at the idea. He claimed he never said he'd open the gates to the smelly Franks or something like that and wouldn't let them in. After a brief siege, trouble at home forced Charlemagne to leave, and in that time he seems to have been attacked by some Basque troops. As punishment, he went to Pamplona and tore down the walls or something fittingly rude. Some Basques, as these people were not anything near a singular entity, attacked Charlemagne on his walk back through the mountain passes and gave him the only real military defeat of his career. They killed some dude in Charlemagne's rear guard named Roland, and medieval European minstrels made a career out of that story. With the Frankish threat gone, Abd al-Rahman worked to consolidate his kingdom, as opposed to expanding Islam's reach to new lands like those who had come before him. He established Cordoba as his real capital of a kingdom, rather than just a regional city. He had an aqueduct built in Cordoba, and had a new palace built there. He expanded and strengthened the city walls and he built a great mosque there which stands today as a World Heritage Site, now a Catholic church, and is called the Mosque Cathedral of Cordoba, or alternatively, just the Mesquita, Spanish for mosque. He didn't just build in Cordoba either, building, quote, mosques, baths, bridges, and castles in every province of his domain, unquote. He wrote poetry, and he created an atmosphere that allowed for poets and scientists and others to flourish. The kingdom that he built in Spain became one of the most advanced in the world, at least at the time. According to Ibn Hayyan, an Andalusian historian writing in the 11th century, as quoted by our al-Makari, quote, Abd al-Rahman was kind-hearted and well-disposed to mercy. He was eloquent in his speech and was endowed with a quick perception. He was very slow in his determinations, but constant and persevering in carrying them to effect. He was exempt from all weakness and prompt in his movements. He was active and stirring. He would never lie in repose or abandon himself to indulgence. He never entrusted the affairs of government to anyone, but administered them himself. Yet he never failed to consult, on such difficult cases as occurred, with people of wisdom and experience. He was a brave and intrepid warrior, always the first in the field. He was terrible in his anger and could bear no opposition to his will. He was, in short, a beneficent, generous, and munificent prince, unquote. Quite a write-up, huh? But he does seem to have brought on the genuine affection of his people. 
Ibn Hayyan also wrote that he was a man of the people, at least for that age, visiting the sick, attending festivities with the peasants, that sort of thing. He had his moments, though. He put lots of heads of enemies, those who rebelled against him after the death of Yusuf, on spikes. There was no shortage of decapitations during his rule, even if it was sort of par for the course at the time. And his faithful servant Badr wasn't killed, but he was exiled to some lowly corner of Andalusia and stripped of all rank and money. This was the man who helped take him from Syria across North Africa and into Spain, with an army ready for him to lead. We don't know what Badr did to upset Abdal Rahman so much, but it is a sign that he didn't tolerate too much insolence. Some of his leading generals who first gave him an army and led him to victory were also slighted by the emir as his power grew. Perhaps it was the Umayyad diaspora reaching Spain and filling leading positions in their place, but some of these men, his original allies, were his later rebel enemies and eventually found their heads removed from their bodies. But of course, the same man who destroyed those he perceived as his enemies was the one who Ibn Hayyan says was the beneficent, generous, and magnificent prince. And there are dozens of early advisors listed that lived to ripe old ages in luxury in and around the new court. The New Cambridge History of Islam states that the descendants of those earlier supporters, quote, became the backbone of the Umayyad administration for more than two centuries. Generations of the Banu Abi Abda, the Banu Khalid, or the Banu Bukht, to name a few of these families, were appointed as viziers, generals, or district governors. And all of them could boast that their ancestors had supported the claims of Abdal Rahman I when he arrived as a destitute fugitive. Unquote. In 788, Abdal Rahman died in his capital, ruling as the first emir of Cordoba for a little over 30 years. He was 57 and had fled from Syria, hunted as an enemy of the state, made his way across the Muslim world, and established a kingdom which was to last centuries, and also be one of the jewels in the crown of the medieval Muslim world. His legacy was enduring. Abd al-Rahman I's dynasty lasted nearly 300 years. In the 10th century, his great-great-great-great-great-grandson, Abd al-Rahman III, brought the kingdom to new heights. He declared Cordoba to be the new caliphate and reigned for 50 years in the golden age of the caliphate of Cordoba. A relatively rich, intellectually advanced and tolerant kingdom, it was one of the strongest in all of Europe and the Mediterranean at the time. Internal division eventually caused the caliphate to disintegrate towards the middle of the 11th century. The successor kingdoms fought each other, and then the Christian Reconquista. As the territories of the Muslim states changed hands and eventually disappeared completely from the Iberian Peninsula in 1492, Abd al-Rahman came to Spain out of desperation. He fled west from Syria, pursued by assassins, then fled from North Africa. In Spain, though, he proved himself more than capable of commanding and of ruling. According to Katlos, quote, Through all these challenges, Abd al-Rahman prevailed, and in doing so, laid the foundation for the next centuries of united Islamic rule in Spain, without which Al-Andalus may have disintegrated, And Katlos goes on to quote Al-Mansur, the Abbasid caliph who named him the Falcon, admiring his rival, saying Abd al-Rahman accomplished everything he did, 
alone, aided only by his intelligence and without any aid except his own determination, unquote. But perhaps it's best to quote the man himself, who had a reputation as a poet, in one of his more direct lines. Quote, It was my good fortune, resolve, and sharp blade, my lance, and my destiny, that these things made, unquote. Next time, we move ahead about 300 years to the southern part of the Holy Roman Empire, where we'll learn about another strong warrior and exceptionally skilled diplomat who was the de facto ruler of large swaths of northern Italy for over 50 years in the High Middle Ages. But wait till you hear the really unique part about her story. Oh wait, I might have just spoiled it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>